1992, Disney produced their 31st animated feature film. And this blockbuster, as you can imagine, included the voices of a number of well-known actors and actresses. It included a score that won a number of awards. In fact, Aladdin's soundtrack was the reason that the film won one of its two Academy Awards. And the theme song, I'm not going to attempt to sing it for you, won a Grammy for Song of the Year. And I would imagine this morning that most all of us, if not all of us, have heard of or at least seen the film Aladdin. And in fact, I believe there's an actual Disney production coming out. I don't know if you'd call it live people, but it is live people as opposed to the animated film coming out in just a couple days, if I'm not mistaken. But I'd imagine we've all seen the film Aladdin. Uh, the story of the unhappy princess, Jasmine, who meets the street urchin, Aladdin, uh, who, who smitten, discovers this magic lamp, which when rubbed, provides this genie who then produces the young man with these traditional three wishes. So I'm sure we're all familiar with the story. And the point that I want to make this morning by reference to this film is tied to Aladdin's lie to Jasmine that follows his discovery of the lamp. And if you recall from the film... He asks the genie to make him into a prince in order to win the heart of the princess. And then later, when these two are alone, rather than the princess, when she recognizes who this young man is, rather than admit to the truth, Aladdin pretends to be something that he isn't. Now, at first, his tall tale appears to have no bearing on the story as Jasmine's father, the sultan, is thrilled with his daughter's selection of a suitor. However, as the plot progresses... Aladdin is forced to keep adding fuel to the fire of his falsehood in order to, to keep his fabrication going. And what began as this simple stretch of the truth quickly snowballs into almost a, a full-blown moral blizzard that almost ends in disaster. But, as we know, this is a Disney film, so there's the requisite, and they all lived happily ever after. Conclusion that provides all the necessary closure. However, before we get to that, we're forced to sit through some emotionally trying scenes where Aladdin's immoral behavior is just is simply maddening. As the audience, we're privy to the truth that if, if Aladdin was just come clean, this whole mess could be cleared up. But every time he's given the opportunity to do so, the man digs his hole a little deeper. Now, despite the fictional nature of this classic, I believe that the course of events portrayed the escalation of Aladdin's crisis resulting from his continued dishonesty. This is as, as accurate a rendering, I believe, of sin's danger and in irrationality as there can be. Because that's exactly what sin is. It's, it's irrational. It's not endowed with reason or understanding, lacking usual or normal mental clarity or coherence. It's not governed. Sin is not governed by or according to reason. Because as the audience, we can see the madness of Aladdin's behavior while the character himself is totally blind. The man's driven by his emotions. And friends, the tragedy here, I believe, is that all too often we're Aladdin. We make a selfish choice to reject God's way. And what follows is a slow but steady march towards inevitable destruction. That while beginning with us, eventually, much like that tea bag, it eventually comes to impact and affect everyone around us. And as with a film, an audience looking in, into our lives, so to speak, can see the inevitable end and mourn the destructive nature of what's coming. But we, the ones engaged, blinded by our sin, just can't. 
And this was Israel's experience in Judges chapter 17 and 18, following Samson's season of leadership. And I'd like us to examine these two chapters today so that we may be warned, church. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them to Judges 17? And this chapter marks a transition in the overall Judges narrative, because if you recall, when we began our study, we noted how Judges may be divided or described, in a sense, as a three-act play, where the curtain rises in the first act to reveal the background to Israel's continued and, 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 and apostasy, their canonization. And then following this explanation, the author then reveals God's response, his, his great salvation, despite Israel's continued and escalating rejection of his person, will, and ways. And this salvation came in the rule of God's deliverers, each of whom, as we saw, we noted, points us forward to the Savior who would come like his people in every way, only without sin. And while each deliverer or, or each judge provided Israel with a measure of relief, 18 years, 20 years, 40 years, some even 80 years, inevitably, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, such that come the end of Samson's service, as we're about to see together, the people had reached a new low. And thus, this final section of the story, I believe, is aptly described by commentators as the climax, the, the depth of the canonization of Israel. It says one Pastor theologian states here, so the writer says, Israel has hit bottom hard, yet not without hope. So have you hit bottom in your life? Is your life maybe like that of Aladdin or, or Israel in the story we're going to study today? Is it marked by an ever increasingly complex system of untruths or shortcomings that you're desperately trying to support, to prop up or or maybe you're facing the temptation today to live like the world, the Canaan, if you will, all around you, turning your back on, on God's word and, and his antiquated, hyper-spiritualized ways, thinking that such a decision will only affect you. And if so, then my prayer this morning is that God will enable us to see together just how irrational and dangerous such considerations are and how our hope rests in God alone. So, that said, let's read Judges 17, beginning with verse 1. Now a man named Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idols, and they were put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And let me pause there just to make a first point as conveyed by our author's concern with communicating the corruption of an Israelite household. The corruption of an Israelite household. And this household belongs, as we're told, to a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim who apparently has stolen his mother's money, a lot of it. And having heard her call down curses on the criminal responsible, decides it's in his best interest to return it, at which point she turns her curse into a blessing and one made in reference to Yahweh. However, she then decides to consecrate some of her silver to the Lord for the purpose 
of making an idol, which Micah then places in his house and to which he adds other priestly accoutrements such as an ephod, other little small idols, even a priest whom the man names from his sons. Now, at first glance, this passage has some positive elements given by the references there to Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. In our Bibles, they're mentioned in both the man's name, because Micah, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, and then the references of his mother. There's also the fact that Micah confesses his sin, and he returns the money. Those are good things. Those are, those are positives. However, then there's also the troubling fact that Micah stole from his mom, no less, confesses his sin seemingly out of fear of a curse rather than genuine conviction. Further, his mother then dedicates some of her money to fashion an idol, which Micah then houses in his own shrine, and to which he adds an ephod, other cult images, along with a priest whom he appoints from among his own sons. I, I believe that this paragraph displays such a conflation of both positive and negative religious behaviors that its farcical tone, I hope, is unmistakable. As readers, there is absolutely no way that we can arrive at the end of verse 5 and conclude that Micah is honoring the Lord and in his behavior displaying a genuine commitment to live for his glory. After all we've noted in the judges' church regarding God's dealings with his people, it is impossible, I pray, for us to conclude that this man, yeah, he's got some faults, but God will be okay with his efforts, right? I mean, as we've seen from the very beginning, God demands perfection from his people. He will not share his glory with another. He can't condone idol worship or any form of religious assimilation from Israel's first arrival in the promised land. Yahweh demanded they remove in entirety the pagan peoples that were living there. In chapter 2, our, our author records the Lord's angels confronting Israel when they were at Bochum, with, where he declared, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you, I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Isn't this the very thing that we see described here in chapter 17? Micah's behavior is a striking display of religious syncretism as he seemingly shamelessly incorporates elements of worship from the land's pagan peoples into that directed by Yahweh. And all of this occurs according to our author because in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone just did as they saw fit. And just to be clear, this statement is repeated shortly as we'll see in just a moment in chapter 18 and verse 1. This statement isn't intended to suggest that a king was the solution to Israel's problem. And that if only Israel had had a monarch, then such behavior would never have occurred. Because remember, at this time, Yahweh is Israel's king. He's their sovereign. And so the absence of a king isn't an excuse. Rather, I believe, our author writing with the benefit of hindsight, so he's recording, the author of Judges, is recording all of these ongoings in Judges retrospectively. He records all of these things. He knows that Israel's Israel's monarchy was, in fact, largely responsible for the apostasy that led to the demise of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Sadly, Solomon was the first royal sponsor of idolatry in the land. And Jeroboam, 
Jeroboam, in Jeroboam, the northern kingdom found a paradigmatic leader who, just like our man Micah here, Jeroboam set up houses of worship of his own choosing. He erected idols. He referred to them as his gods. He even installed his own priests. So church, the point I believe our author intends with his commentary there in verse 6, isn't that a king would have solved Israel's spiritual problem. But rather at this time, Israel didn't need a king to lead them into idolatry. People did that all by themselves. In other words, the difference between Israel with a king and without was that during the monarchy, kings led the way. They set the example in abominable acts. In pre-monarchic times, the people just did it on their own. And church, I don't believe that our day is any different to that of Israel's as described here in our text. We don't need leaders to show us how, how to sin or to guide us into wickedness. We're quite capable of creating our own gods, of mixing our own spiritual cocktails from the different streams that are available and then packaging these beliefs and passing them along to our posterity. In some cases, our success in such endeavors may even be unintentional and may grieve our hearts as our children take our creations further than we ever intended. Something that I believe we'll see when we study Israel's experiences in chapter 19 next week. And I say that such success is unintended because I fear there are a great many families in our nation who have a knowledge of God, and this is the God of the Bible, who know his demands for, for moral perfection and the provision of salvation in Christ Jesus. However, their lives don't reflect wholehearted commitment to the gospel. Rather, their faith, so-called, demonstrates a religion of convenience in which God provides them with guarantees for life regardless of their actions. And, and such a lived religion, it's marked by faith displayed in a once-a-week attendance and limited to the church's locale, that inevitably teaches their children that worship is optional, that this God is indifferent to his people's lifestyles, and the church is little more than a social club. Is it any wonder with the prevalence of such self-serving, moralistic, therapeutic deism that the church today in America is witnessing such a mass exodus of their youth? I mean, why would you attend church or read the Bible if God loves you regardless and, and only wants for you to be happy? Friends, I fear there are many children growing up in homes with parents whose lived religion is like Micah's. It's just a blend of Biblical Christianity with American capitalism, enlightenment, rationalism, and postmodern pluralism. Emmanuel, if we don't run the race that's been marked out before us with perseverance, if we grow weary in doing good, if we fail to keep meeting together, and if we cease to be concerned by sin and its presence in the camp, then we can be certain, we can be certain of the corrupting influence of such sinful behavior and its effect on our households. That's why I believe the author was so keen to capture the corruption of Micah's household. But he doesn't stop there, because as we've noted, sin, as we talked about with our children, sin's effect only spreads. And I believe this is revealed here in our text by our author's ensuing record of the corruption then of the Levitical priesthood. The corruption of the Levitical priesthood. You look back with me now to verse 7, there in chapter 17, which reads, A young Levite, from Bethlehem in Judah, who'd been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and 
Be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. And this account, like that before, it reveals Israel's ongoing religious assimilation, only in ways less overt than before, along with the recounting the degenerating effect of Micah's sin. So let me show you how. First of all, note where this young Levite is from, Bethlehem in Judah. And that may not seem like that big of a deal for us today, but when God's people entered the promised land, each tribe, as we know, was allotted a portion of property. The Levites, however, weren't. They weren't given a property or a territory. Rather, they were assigned 48 cities within the territories of the other tribes. And that enabled them then to serve God's people in their new homes as priests. Bethlehem, unsurprisingly, given the nature of what we're seeing, wasn't on the list. So this young Levite has apparently left his inheritance. He's been living in a city God did not give to his tribe. And while he has left Bethlehem, his reasons for departing is given as, I'm looking for a place to stay. That's the way our NIV renders this, the ESV reads, I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Now, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 6, Yahweh there gave the Levites instructions through Moses regarding this very thing, sojourning, if you will, saying in Deuteronomy 18, 6, if a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he's living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, he may minister in the name of the Lord his God. Now, unsurprisingly, there's no mention of Yahweh's leading here in our text, is there? And far from serving in the Lord's name, this Levite here serves in Micah's. Further, this Levite doesn't accept the prescribed honorarium that's also detailed later in Deuteronomy 18, but rather he settles for silver, clothes, room, and board, all agreed on by negotiation. The point is, I believe, this priest, far from being God's consecrated instrument called to serve before Yahweh on Israel's behalf, this guy is little more than a religious opportunist. He's clearly aware of his tribe's spiritual significance as given by his response to Micah's question asked there in verse 9. And when offered a job, he readily accepts. Further, while he agrees to be Micah's father, according to verse 10, he apparently submits to being treated as his son, according to verse 11. And while he, the Levite, is supposed to be the priest, he's ordained or set apart by a layman, Micah. Now, I believe that in this interaction, our author desired to demonstrate the heart-rending corruption of the Levitical priesthood. Far from the days of Aaron and, and Moses when facing a rebellious people, all prostrating themselves before the golden calf, when Moses had called, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites had all rallied to the Lord. And on that day, and for their act of faithfulness, God had declared, you have been set apart to the Lord today. Tragically, as evidenced by the actions of our young friend, that sense of consecration was long gone. Replaced by the notion of religion's commercial potential. And that's a reality that I believe is reflected in Micah's conclusion, voice verse 13, that now I know the Lord will be good to me. Why? Since this Levite has become my priest. Isn't that a sad sentiment, church? And how frightening, how frighteningly familiar. You know, Micah saw this priest almost like a good luck charm, a means of 
manipulating God to provide him with what he wanted. In Micah's sick and twisted faith, Yahweh could be placated by special priestly acts, which then obligated him, God, to act on behalf of his petitioners. While this Levite, he viewed his role like any other career. It was just a means to an end, not a calling. He was quite happy to serve as this Ephraimite's priest under his ordination, employing his ephod and bowing to his idol because his role was just like any other job. There was no concern for Yahweh's will or word voiced here because those things belong to a different day. And church, are we any different? Where we believe that we need a, a special priestly cast to speak to God on our behalf or to visit lost friends for the purpose of sharing the gospel as if they have direct access to God that we don't or their testimonies are more somehow more effective with the gospel being proclaimed? Or what about the religious professionals who take positions in churches based on the size of the congregation or the style of worship, the location over theology. Do we not live in a culture that has professionalized religion, marketing it to an increasingly secular public by increasingly secular concessions? Church, we can't make concessions to sin and expect God to bless us as our author reveals. We've seen how Micah's household was corrupted, which in turn corrupted the Levitical priesthood. Now I want us to see how this in turn corrupted an entire tribe, the corruption of an Israelite tribe. So would you look back with me now in our text, this time to chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1, we're, we're reminded that in those days, Israel had no king. That's a phrase that I told you we'd encountered earlier. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtel to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. So in an account that closely resembles the land's first scouting by the spies, we're told that Dan has yet to come into their inheritance. Now, the reason for this failure is recounted back in chapter 1, verse 34, which reads that the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come into the plain. And so, basically due to their spiritual weakness, marked by military ineptitude, Dan's been limited to the hills until now. But it seems, for whatever reason, they're finally ready to make the move. Sadly, their motivation is given by our author's silence, does not appear to stem from conviction of sin, nor do they set about their quest by beginning with confession of their former failure to rely on Yahweh, coupled with a recommitment to follow him now. Instead, this group of five is simply set out seemingly at random, representative of the tribe's entirety to pick a spot, any spot. And then in verse 2 through 10, we're not going to read these verses but verses 2 through 10 describe the spies' encounter with Micah's priest. And then a vague pronouncement by this priest of God's blessing on their venture. And a pronouncement in which this priest makes this reference to God. And it has to be noted it's not Yahweh, but rather the name for any God that could have been worshipped at that time in Canaan. The term Elohim makes this reference along with this discovery of these, of these spies of the, what they believe to be the perfect place. For the tribe of Dan. And they return. Then verse 11. It describes the clan's move. As some 600 warriors head out. To secure the tribe's new home. And it's a journey that. As they move. Takes them back by Micah's place. And so this is where I want us to pick the story back up. 
Verse 14, there in chapter 18. Verse 14, Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved images, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priests rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved images and went along with the people. We, we only think that the problem of ambition and opportunism in ministry is a recent phenomenon. But as I believe revealed by the Levites' response here, it goes back 3,000 years at least. Presented with the invitation, granted, by force, but still it's an invitation to be Pope to an entire tribe. Our young Levite doesn't hesitate. Doesn't hesitate. Further, further revealing the dearth of character of this guy. It's just as he sacrificed his God-given calling to serve as Micah's ordained minister, now he abandons his small-town employer without hesitation to become the megachurch pastor for an entire tribe. And church, let's Guard ourselves against the mistake of viewing this expression of pride as unique to the professional minister. Because are we not all prone to say yes to those things that provide us with visibility? And we're quick to serve when recognition is on the line. And we react, often negatively so, when our fiefdoms are invaded and responsibilities are taken away. It's that old Baptist joke about the church meeting that goes south over the color of a carpet, isn't it? And yet every time we tell it, sadly, we all laugh nervously because but for the grace of God, we could be arguing over the color of a carpet, couldn't we? And friends, the moment that we think not, we've assumed a dangerous position in which we fail to appreciate our proclivity to sin and desperate need of God's grace. This priest sold out to the highest bidder and he joins the Danite caravan headed to Laish. But verse 22 reads, when they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priests and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? And right here, this is where I believe we see, we see the full effect of Micah's sin and the irrationality of it. As Dan's leaders steal his priest, who you know isn't the kind of priest that you'd want serving you theologically or philosophically or morally or ethically, because theologically, this guy is willing to bow his knee to whatever God is on offer. Philosophically, he views his role like any other job, so he's willing to do whatever it takes to succeed, where big is always better. And morally or ethically, his principal concern is for his own well-being, which doesn't bode well for contract fulfillment in the future, or the quality of his teaching. And yet, and yet, this tribe takes him along. Takes him along, along with all of the utensils of his trade that don't belong to him. It's a fact he seems impervious to. And which Micah, in his, 
confrontation, declares, I built these things. And so the gods Dan is making off with have stamps made by Micah on the bottom, and yet they're supposed to serve as these people's deities. Really? You would think that someone, anyone, would see the folly of such behavior. They clearly hadn't done Micah any good as the Danites had just walked in, walked out with him without so much as a murmur from the chief priest. But following Dan's successful capture of Laish, we read verse 31 how they continued to use the idols of Micah, the idols that Micah had made. All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. Completely irrational, isn't it? And yet, this is how sin works. It's why we see people rubbing rabbit's feet or knocking on wood or, or acting out of superstition in any number of ways. It's why, it's why people deny God's existence, but then they bow their knees to, to money or to love, the acquisition of power. It's how we can see people admit, yeah, the Bible tells a great story. They might even concede it's true, but then refuse to live by its principles. It's how we can watch others make mistakes, but then when it comes to us, we insist, well, others' consequences will then never be my consequences, and that somehow our actions will result in different ends, as if our decisions made. It's only going to affect me. And sin isn't really that big of a deal, and I can live right beside it, date it even, but never succumb to it. Really? Church, this story of Micah, like the story of Aladdin, begins with a seemingly insignificant act that eventually affects an entire tribe, because sin isn't something that we can play with. Sin is deadly. It's like a cancer that destroys, it spreads. We can't afford to entertain sin like the tea bag in a cup that effect infuses itself throughout friends if there are sins or sin in our lives i pray that this morning by god's spirit he would lead us to confess it by god's grace confess it and then deal with it at the cross where christ dealt with it because if we don't it will spread and don't forsake the meeting, the fellowship with God's people. Why? Because as an audience to a film, God has designed his church such that we may often see the madness in one another's lives. And by God's grace, through the use of God's word, then we can gently rebuke one another, restoring each other to fellowship. May we be men and women so in love with Christ and his word that we never live in that sin from which our Savior died to set us free. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord God, you are a holy God. And we are a sinful people. Lord, and it seems like a stuck record to continue to return to this subject. But Father, this is our reality. Father, we can't ever grow beyond our need of the gospel. Lord, we simply grow deeper and deeper in our appreciation of just what your love means and the depth of that love displayed as you would die for us sinners. Father, we need your grace. And we are so prone to pride, so prone to see the values that mark our world and success in life around us, 
and allow those values to influence our standing or our felt standing before you. When, Lord, you don't look, as Samuel was informed, at the outward. You look at the heart. Father, would you forgive us for how often we are led to value what we can see, not what your word has declared is of eternal significance. Father, would you forgive us? And Lord, if there are things that we need to address in our lives, hurts, misunderstandings, God, would you lead us to address those things? For as we've seen, such simple decisions can lead to massive failures. Father, we desire for you to be glorified. And the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't glorify us. It glorifies you. Father, thank you for the hope that is ours. Father, thank you for the fact that you can take our lives and use them for your glory. Where we're weak, you are strong. God, would you take us and lead us to be the church that pictures your gospel in a way that challenges and offers hope to a world in desperate need. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.